Welcome to St. Anthony's College for yet another of the Chancellor's seminars. These are seminars of which we're particularly proud because they seem to us to exemplify very well what we do at this college and what Oxford does, and that is have very, very good conversations. And we will again have a very good conversation this afternoon. For those of you who don't know the college, and I suspect most of you do, we are, without boasting, the most international college in Oxford, both in the range of subjects that we cover. We have seven regional centers that look at much of the world, not all, but, but much of the world. We have fellows and students who come at last count from, I think, 68 different countries. And so our, our reach, I think, is, is truly um, international and global. And wherever you go in the world, you will find an Antonian, um, where, where I think more powerful an Opus Dei, <laughs> <laughs> and perhaps slightly more liberal. <laughs> anyway, I'd like to... You don't have to agree. I'd like to welcome you all, and, and, and I'd like to ask Jane Kaplan, who's the director of the European Studies Centre, to start the proceedings. Um, I'm welcoming you on behalf of the European Studies Centre, which is the proximate cause of today's event. Um, the uh, Chancellor's Seminars, which are uh, run by the European Studies Centre, are a semi-regular event in our calendar. They depend upon everyone's schedules, but they're always a high point of the, um, of the European Studies Centre's academic year whenever they happen. Um, today's um, uh, seminar is going to be on British EU policy after the election, and I'd like to just briefly introduce today's uh, participants, and whatever I don't say, um, Lord Patton can add afterwards. Um, the uh, chair of the proceedings is uh, Lord Patton, Chris Patton, who hardly needs an introduction in this company. Um, obviously had a very long career uh, nationally as a politician between 1979 and 1992 um, as a politician and a minister. Then he had further careers as governor of Hong Kong, uh, not New South Wales, and uh, European Commissioner of External Relations. Uh, in between, um, he helped to bring peace to Northern Ireland, rather in the news again today. And if anyone knows what's going on in relation to the Savile Report, please have a word with me afterwards, because I'm keen to know. Anyway, um, his partners... Uh, oh, sorry, I should also say, of course, that he's... More locally speaking, he's the Chancellor of this university, and even more locally, how could I forget, even more locally but more centrally from our parochial point of view, he's the patron of the European Studies Centre, and we welcome him in all his capacities today. Uh, his partners in conversation today are Lord Hannay and Sir Stephen Wall, who are both distinguished diplomats um, with long records of official engagement with the European community. Um, Lord Hannay, who is on the right of um, Lord Patton, is... Um, uh, a diplomat who had responsibility for European communities at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. He was then British ambassador to the EC, ambassador and permanent representative to the UN, and later special UN representative for uh, Cyprus. Um, Sir Stephen Wall, immediately to my right, um, his principal offices have also included ambassadorship to uh, Portugal. He was permanent representative for this country to the EU, head of the European Secretariat in the Cabinet Office, an EU advisor to uh, Tony Blair. Uh, today's topic, British EU policy after the election, could barely be more timely and riveting, given our current diarchy, um, nor could today's speakers, I think, be bettered as guides to what to expect, or at any rate, what to look out for. If they're not in the business of prediction, they can at least tell us what we should keep our eyes on. So thank you very much, gentlemen, for coming today, and I'll hand over to um, our Chancellor, our patron. Thank you very much, Professor, and uh, many thanks to the European Centre and St Anthony's for your uh, hospitality. <clears throat> when we originally had the idea of 
um, holding this seminar um, uh, and inviting uh, David Hannay and Stephen Wall, um, I, I was just a tad concerned about the timing for this reason that it's sometimes erroneously thought that uh, diplomats don't have strong opinions or that if they have strong opinions, they don't express them strongly. But um, both these uh, uh, colleagues today who've had stellar diplomatic careers not only have strong opinions, but do express them um, uh, ferociously strongly, um, eloquently and convincingly. And I have to say that the, the few sparks of political life left in me um, <clears throat> uh, made an uneasy glow when I thought about um, holding this seminar either during the election campaign or <laughs> just before the election campaign with uh, uh, a great deal of um, a possibility of um, people getting the wrong end of the stick. Um, but we had no idea when we, when we uh, chose this time after the election that we would be fetching up um, with a um, kumbaya government, with a government of, of uh, all the talents um, uh, which um, seems intent on, on showing the rest of Europe um, how nice and decent, decent and congenial it is. I don't think that will actually stop um, uh, David or Stephen um, uh, expressing some robust views um, uh, this afternoon. Um, and what we'll do, if, if, if I may, is, is uh, ask David to speak for about 10 minutes and then Stephen, and then um, allow ourselves to be provoked into some conversation. David, would you like to start? Yeah. Thank you very much, uh, Chris, and uh, uh, for um, inviting me, Diane, for this splendid occasion. And as you said yourself, uh, uh, quite a lot has changed since you set the examination paper. Um, when I was asked, it, it was called, it said, options, what are the options for EU policy for the new government? And at that time, uh, I think it was sometime like back in February or March, it was sort of fairly reasonable for anyone who was an observer of the British political scene to surmise that there was going to be a hung parliament. But I have to say that I didn't, and nor, of course, do the two leaders of that coalition government at that time believe that there was even the slightest chance that there would be the coalition government we now have. Uh, and, of course, they both campaigned in a sense that made it very, seem very unlikely. Um, so uh, the fact that we've now got a fully-fledged coalition is a complete uh, renversement des alliances since the time this, um, this lecture was scheduled. And the other thing that's happened since the time the lecture was scheduled is that we have a full-blown sovereign debt crisis in Europe, which was only very faintly discernible at the time uh, I was invited. We were invited down here. Uh, it was really a cloud the size of a man's hand, a Greek man's hand, of course, uh, at the time. And now, of course, it dominates EU discourse. And so it's a good reminder of Harold Macmillan's great saying about events, dear boy, events, as the thing that he really worried about. And in this case, uh, things have changed a lot. And in trying to answer the question, I'll try and answer it in two different ways. Firstly, uh, from what I would call a narrow British political perspective and then from a wider European perspective. From the narrow British perspective, I would sort of divide the possibilities up 
into four options, not all as likely as the others. The first pair uh, are the totally conflicting, contradictory options set out respectively in the two parties' manifestos, uh, and they are now allied in government. The Conservative manifesto uh, option was really little more than a long list of the things the EU should not do or should stop doing, uh, or at least stop doing them in the UK. Uh, there was almost nothing constructive. Repatriation, referendum locks on the transfer of powers to the EU, a sovereignty act likely to challenge the primacy of EU law were the order of the day. And the EU was to be dragged back into the long dark tunnel of institutional uh, bickering from which it had only just escaped with the entry into force of Lisbon. Down that road, in my view, lay very little except confrontation, isolation of the UK, and probably, ultimately, humiliation of the sort we suffered in the 1974-75 renegotiation, when a, uh, an, an outcome was reached which had to be dressed up as a mighty victory, even though it wasn't anything of the sort. Uh, luckily, uh, little of this agenda, apart from the referendum lock, which I have to say I suspect is just as likely to lock in the people who introduce it as to lock out the people in Brussels, uh, nevertheless, uh, nothing apart from that has survived the triage of the coalition agreement. But uh, beware one thing, and that is the possibility that much of that agenda will simply be stored away in a cupboard a club in the closet to be brought out again at the time of the next general election, whenever that may be, to use against both the Lib Dem partners in the coalition and, of course, to ward off the horrors of UKIP and the BNP. Now, the second option, the Lib Dem manifesto, was a pretty classical British pro-European one, such as either the Conservatives or the Labour Party might have espoused at different times over the last 40 years, but were no longer bold enough to do so now. Uh, the only um, trace of Euroscepticism was the admission that joining the Euro was not for tomorrow or even next year. That agenda, too, has not found much of a place in the coalition agreement, apart from a negative firming up of the self-denying uh, uh, approach to the euro. The third and fourth options are more reactive than proactive and are, I suggest, a good deal more likely to transpire uh, than either of the first two. The third will consist, could consist of steering a zigzag course between the first two. Uh, thus, any step deemed by the substantial Eurosceptic element in the Conservative Party as pro-European or integrationist would be matched by some step taken to please them, an opt-out or a veto of something requiring unanimity. That sort of policy, if implemented, will infuriate our partners as being both unpredictable and unprincipled. The fourth option, and I think, I could say I fear, the most likely one to be adopted, will be effectively to have no general policy towards the EU at all to elevate pragmatism into a defining principle, to give up any attempt to shape EU policy formulation. This approach 
perhaps reflected in the void where EU policy should have been in the Queen's speech, would amount to conceding that the two parties in the coalition found it just too difficult to formulate an overall EU policy in advance of being forced to agree to elements of policy by the action of others, the Commission, or France, or Germany, or some other grouping of member states. The other member states would live with this, but they would neither respect it, nor would they pay very much attention to it. Well, turning now, and as you will gather, that's a slightly gloomy view of the narrow uh, political prospect of the options in the narrow British uh, domestic party terms, turning now to the broader, more genuinely European agenda, what strikes me looking at the, what surrounds us is by how much, by, is that there is, that this is a time when a British government could get its European act together and should be doing so. For one thing, there is a leadership vacuum at the heart of Europe, the French and Germans are frequently at odds, uh, and the Commission has lost much of its luster and influence. It's a pretty odd time, if you look at it in a historical context, for the British to withdraw into the wings. Europe needs to regain some of the leadership role in climate change, and I'll go over here now what I would think uh, a, a broad European agenda could be. It needs to, uh, to regain some of the leadership role in the climate change that slipped away from its grasp at Copenhagen and to complete the flawed and inadequate outcome of that meeting. And that's probably going to take longer than the period between now and the Cancun meeting in December. It needs to continue to press for freer and fairer world trade uh, towards and to revive the Doha round as part of a global exit route from the financial and economic crisis. It needs to persevere with its own enlargement as a key element of stabilizing the Balkans and fulfilling the commitment to negotiate in good faith with non-member countries in the Balkans and with Turkey. It needs gradually to make a reality of its common foreign and security policy both organizationally and by developing uh, coherent, firm policies of engagement towards Russia and in the Middle East. It needs an effective commission to roll back some of the state aid departures of the crisis we are going through, to complete the single market and to strike the right balance between regulation at the European level and free markets. It needs to work for a rules-based international community with effective multilateral institutions and greater representation of the emerging powers, even if that has to be, in some cases, at Europe's expense. It needs to restore its credibility as a partner in the transatlantic dialogue with an American president who actually wants to see Europe punching its weight. So there you are. That is an agenda. Now, every one of those policy objectives is, in my view, entirely consistent with British interests and with the wider European interest. So should we not be arguing for a policy option uh, for our new coalition government that weaves them together into a coherent whole and presents it publicly and presents it positively in public as a way in which, in a way which does not leave the field clear to a heavily Eurosceptic press and to a by now 
I would say rather mildly Eurosceptic public, albeit one, uh, the public that is, that doesn't seem to find these European issues uppermost in their minds when they come to vote. Now I admit I have so far funked two important issues. The first is Britain's role in the European financial crisis, the sovereign debt crisis. I funk that because I really cannot see how Britain can or should hope to play much of a role in the debate now raging on how to tighten the disciplines of the Eurozone. Institutionally, this is, I would guess, more likely to play out in some use of the Lisbon Treaty's provisions for enhanced cooperation rather than in any attempt to have overall treaty change, which in any case, uh, judging by the time it took to get Lisbon ratified, would at the very best take quite a few years, by which time you would know very well whether or not uh, the crisis uh, had uh, come to a bad or a reasonably benign end. Uh, institutionally, um, so uh, I think the enhanced cooperation line is, it wrote, is more likely than the other. What we cannot afford, however, during the period when the members of the Eurozone are working out uh, just how far they are prepared to go in the sense of greater discipline, is carping criticism or schadenfreude as our closest international trading partners go through what will be, what is, a pretty agonizing experience. They will be very sensitive during this period and we ought to be sensitive about their sensitivity. The second issue I ducked is an old friend, or if you can call anything to do with the EU budget a friend, it is something we are all, alas, all too familiar with, uh, on which important negotiations and decisions will take place in 2011 and 2012, i.e. not very far away. They won't be at all easy. They never are. Why are they not easy? Because this is a zero-sum game. If you pay more, if you pay less, somebody else has to pay more. Uh, it is an iron rule of EU budget negotiations. All talk about larger cakes and so that sort of thing goes for nothing. Of one thing we can be pretty sure, there will not, in the present and prospective fiscal climate, be any effective pressure for a much larger EU budget. I hope uh, we will moderate our language about CAP reform, the normal British tone on that being that of rage and incomprehension, and that upsets our partners no end and doesn't actually influence them in a helpful way, it just uh, directs their attention even more obsessively towards our rebate. Uh, there is quite wide support for reducing the proportion of the budget that goes on agriculture, steadily but not dramatically, and increasing what goes into areas such as research and energy security, and that would be very much in our interest. And I hope, therefore, that we will approach this negotiation in a much more calm and collegiate spirit than we have done on past occasions. Some hope, you might say, but nevertheless, I'm going to express it. And I believe a relatively low-key budget negotiation without excessive histrionics would be a better option for our interests than, in, than organising another year or two of trench warfare. Now, perhaps all this is a bit unrealistic, but I do feel it is time, as uh, Chancellor Chris at Patton has said and is doing 
to ask that we look at all the options and not stay stuck in the old grooves along which we've run too long and which are well summed up in the four narrow options which I spoke at the beginning. Well, I would like to add my thanks very much to, to Chris Patton and to St Anthony's for the invitation and to all of you for, uh, for uh, being here. I think there's been actually a pretty fair continuity in uh, uh, British uh, policy towards the European community and now the European Union since we, since we joined. The rhetoric changes, but the reality is not the one that's sometimes caricatured by our partners that all we want is a trading area. I think we do want a political Europe as well as an economic uh, Europe, but we want a Europe that is run by governments. The view of successive British Prime Ministers, it was Tony Blair's view and I worked for him, it was John Major's uh, when I worked uh, for him, is that basically the European Union should be run by France, Britain and Germany. Uh, and the European Commission, of which Chris Patton was a most distinguished member, is there as a kind of super uh, bureaucracy. And I don't think this government uh, will be any different in that view. Just let me look at a few of the, of the things that are in now the joint programme of um, the coalition. First of all, uh, that there should be a referendum on future transfers of sovereignty from Britain to Brussels. I think the government's aim is hopefully to have legislation enacted uh, by next uh, spring. That will obviously encompass any future moves to change the treaties, with one notable exception. It is, the government's, it is not the government's uh, intention to include in the requirement for a referendum uh, future treaty changes devoted solely to uh, enlargement, which means they remain committed to the same enlargement agenda as their predecessors, including uh, to Turkey, of which I think the three of us certainly are strong uh, uh, supporters. That means that the government may actually, when it comes to the ratification of the, of the most likely imminent uh, uh, enlargement uh, treaty, namely Croatia, may find itself having a row about Europe uh, with its own Eurosceptic backbenchers. Because one of the things that will be in the Croatian Treaty of Accession are all those protocols to the Lisbon Treaty, which the Irish secured as the price for getting the second yes in their second referendum. And I think a lot of people on the Conservative backbenches will argue uh, that because the Lisbon Treaty, bits of it, these protocols form part of the Croatian Accession Treaty, there should be a referendum. But the government, I gather, are determined to resist that. The other area in which they will promise referendums is that bit of the Lisbon Treaty, which basically uh, enables uh, what would previously have been done by treaty change to be done by agreement of the member states and ratification by parliaments. And there are two areas where the government will say that ratification by parliament alone is not enough and that there would have to be uh, a referendum. Uh, one is uh, if there were to be a move on the part of uh, our partners to move towards majority voting uh, in foreign policy. And the other is on setting the overall uh, level of the European uh, budget. So that's one area, and that's probably the most important, that's the thing the coalition are agreed on. Second area, where there is still uh, a resolution to be had between the Lib Dems on the one hand and the Conservatives on the other, uh, is the notion of a, 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 a law enshrining sovereignty uh, in, uh, in British law for the, for the first time. Now, there are various ways, in theory, that you could, you could do this. Some of those within the Conservative Party who've advocated a sovereignty bill want in some way to replicate the German uh, constitution. 
Um, now, there are two problems with that. One is, of course, that we don't have a written constitution uh, in the way that the Germans have, and the German constitution was there as a fact before Germany joined uh, the European Union. The second is that uh, whenever there has been a potential conflict between European law and the German constitution, uh, the German body politic has moved to remove that possible friction. Uh, there was a case which our host here this evening will know much more about than I do in the mid-70s where a German trader uh, found himself at loggerheads uh, with European law but was supported by the German courts on the basis that he had certain human rights that European law was infringing and because there wasn't a corpus of human rights law in the European uh, Union human rights should, under German constitutional law, should prevail. Now, the Commission said, you've got to be joking, and if you persist in that uh, view, we will clobber you, the Germans, as being in breach of your European treaty obligations. And the Germans backed down and, in the mid-'80s, regularised the position. And, of course, one of the motives behind Germany's wish to see a Charter of Fundamental Rights was that there would be a body of human rights law within the European Union. So, in other words, the whole motivation in Germany is to avoid that conflict, whereas one has to uh, reckon that in our system uh, quite a lot of the motivation would be to um, have as much aggro as possible. I think uh, the kind of work that's been done at the moment within government uh, would be on a piece of legislation that would basically restate in one legal document, in one law, existing European uh, case law. Uh, in terms of sovereignty versus, I mean, national sovereignty versus shared uh, sovereignty. If, uh, and that I think is the way the Conservative bit of the coalition will want to go, if they get agreement from their Lib Dem partners, it remains to be seen how that again can be massaged and managed in terms of opinion uh, on the uh, backbenches within the Conservative uh, Party. The other area, which was an area of potential conflict in the Conservative manifesto and much less so under the coalition agreement, is the whole business of Britain opting in or opting out of cooperation in justice and home affairs, uh, in particular uh, the fight against international crime, uh, terrorism and, uh, uh, and so on, where the government had decided to take an ad hoc approach. Um, and I think that probably there we will find over time that policy doesn't much change between this government and its uh, predecessor. But there is a five-year rendezvous under the Lisbon uh, Treaty at which a decision has to be taken as things move towards uh, the full operation of community law as to whether you opt in on that basis, giving full jurisdiction to the European Court, or opt out. Uh, and that's obviously an issue uh, further down the, the track. Just briefly, one other uh, uh, area which is uh, confronting the new uh, government, and it touches on the things that David was, was talking about in terms of where a government might position itself, is the whole formulation of the European External Action Service um, uh, under Cathy uh, Ashton. Uh, and this gives me the, I don't know, have, have, have any of you heard Cathy uh, Ashton's uh, European joke? Oh, good. Uh, well, because there are, not, there are not many good European jokes, but this is one. And I heard it from Cathy Ashton herself, so it's from the horse's mouth. As you know, Henry Kissinger always said, you know, who do I ring up in Europe? There's not one single person I can ring up. So Cathy Ashton says to Hillary Clinton, look, now, you Americans, here is, I am the person. If you want one person to ring up in Europe, I am that person, and I'll give you my mobile phone number. So Hillary Clinton goes back to Washington, and she goes to see President Obama, and she says, look, we've finally got thing we've always wanted for, this, this one European phone number. So uh, Obama says, right, well, let's ring it. So uh, Hillary Clinton dials the number, and she gets a voicemail. And it says, this is the 
uh, voicemail of Cathy Ashton, European High Representative for Foreign Policy, uh, for French European Foreign Policy, press one, for German <laughs> European Foreign Policy. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is a good joke. Um, anyway, I think, I mean, there's a lot of argy-bargy going on, and as usual, there's an argy-bargy over turf as between uh, the Commission on the one hand, the Council uh, on the other, the European Parliament uh, on the other. Uh, Britain has its own uh, particular position, which is for, um, again, reasons of perception and sovereignty, these, the, these European representations, these European embassies, uh, should not have anything to do uh, with providing consular uh, services, at least not for British subjects, which seems to me to be uh, totally uh, daft. You, know, you don't expect, if you have a, a, a crash in France, to be whisked off to a British hospital. It seems to me that uh, if you're in need of consular services, uh, particularly in some area where Britain isn't itself represented, to be able to rely on uh, European consular services would be uh, very sensible. And it's also the British uh, position that on those residual areas where there is still a national six-monthly presidency, then in international dealings that presidency should uh, uh, take the lead, which again seems to me to be uh, a triumph of, of ideology over, over uh, pragmatism. I think, like, like David, this is my final point, that there are two issues that will really bedevil the government. One is the next round of negotiations on the European budget and the whole um, British rebate, the famous Margaret Thatcher uh, rebate. Uh, and I think the government's position, not least because of our own financial position, would be that we're not prepared to pay uh, a penny more. Uh, and they will certainly try in advance of that to get a group of countries, including Britain, uh, to be what is known as the 1% club. In other words, that you maintain the ceiling of the European budget at its present level uh, rather than increase it. There's likely to be support for that, but within that, uh, most of our partners, for the reasons David gave, will want us to be uh, reducing the amount of our rebate. And the other is the whole question of the future of the, uh, of the Eurozone. I mean, this government is nervous about economic governance done by the members of the Eurozone to the exclusion of, uh, of, of Britain. So far, they've uh, uh, avoided uh, that. And obviously, it makes a lot of sense on many issues from the perspective of our partners to have Britain uh, as a, a, one of the biggest European economies uh, inside the tent, although we can't be both inside the tent and uh, not, uh, not paying. But I think one of the things that this government will be nervous about, as its predecessor was, was the possibility of more things in governance terms and in institutional terms, in terms of economic governance, being done within the Eurozone to the exclusion of, um, uh, of us as non-Eurozone uh, members. The main reason why John Major decided when he was Prime Minister to allow the single currency to go ahead, albeit with an opt-out, opt-in for Britain, was because he was advised correctly that there was nothing to stop those who wanted to go ahead and create a single currency to have a separate treaty outside the European Union treaties uh, in which we would have no part. And it's perfectly possible for the Eurozone countries to do something similar uh, again. So I think that would be one of the things that uh, that uh, most uh, worries them. Other than that, I suspect that this government, and I think this is very much the Cameron psychology and certainly William Hague psychology, will try on some of the areas that David has mentioned, like uh, uh, climate change, um, to try and put themselves in, a, in, a, in more of a leadership uh, uh, role, not least because they will be conscious of the deficit in terms of all the things which we find it difficult to participate in. Thank you. Thank you both very much indeed. I wonder if I could start with... Um, uh, what you regard as almost an inevitable row, that is, um, uh, over the uh, budget and the rebate. Um, 
Given the views of others like the French on the budget, um, given the fact that public expenditure in every member state, not least this one, will be being squeezed over the next few years, um, given the um, usual um, calm and relaxed way in which the tabloids um, in this country deal with these issues, is it really possible for any government to deal with the budget and the rebate in a low-key way? Well, I think there's low-key and low-key. Um, 